Amen. Okay, I'm going to begin this sermon with a warning. Um, you are about to be traumatized. I don't know how else to say this. Uh, sheer terror is about to shred you. Uh, doom is about to devour you and descend upon you. Um, it'll be worse than watching The Conjuring 1 or 2. It'll be worse than Insidious 3. It'll be worse than Strangers. And Annabelle, it'll be worse than any Stephen King novel out there converted to movie or miniseries or short story or poem, period. Uh, it'll be worse than being, a, than being at home, alone, at night, and hearing an eerie sound outside in the backyard, and you go to the back window, and you peer through the window, and you see a clown looking at you. It's going to be worse than that. Absolutely worse than that. How is this trauma going to happen to you? You know how it's going to happen to you? I'm going to verbalize out loud one word. One word that is literally bringing the Western world to its knees and gaining other parts of the world year by year. What's the scary word? Depression. So let's start with what the health professionals are saying, shall we? Um, NHS Director of Mental Health in the UK, that's Great Britain, Mandy Stevens said, as a mental health professional, I thought I knew everything about depression, then I had a breakdown. Do not miss what she's saying. She is a foremost expert in depression, the top of the food chain in depression. She knows more about depression than you can learn, well, whatever. She knows more than you about depression, right? And she's saying she had no clue what it was until she experienced it. So as we move into this topic, this is very, very important. If you have never suffered depression, you know nothing about what it's like. And our dear friends in here that have suffered depression need our utmost compassion, our utmost empathy, and probably we need to keep our mouth shut. The Telegraph reported that this Dr. Mandy Stevens had gone from being a happy, functioning 45-year-old with a demanding job she loved, being so racked with anxiety she couldn't leave her bedroom, couldn't change her clothes, couldn't even bring herself to brush her teeth. She had spent nearly 30 years on the front line of mental health, and within 10 days, she became a patient herself. A terrifying blackness had gripped her. She goes on to say at the end of this interview, there is no immunity. Mental illness can come out of nowhere, and it can affect anyone at any time. I'm the poster child. Mental health professionals say this. If you look around this room, look, at, look around this room. One in four of you are right now experiencing depression or will experience depression at some point in time in your life. Mental health professionals in the United States are now calling depression, quote, the growing American health storm and one of the greatest mental health challenges facing Americans today. Lisa Cohen, she's a PhD, clinical professor of psychiatry at Mount Bethel, Sinai, Israel, and New York, says they are now seeing an escalation in their hospital of college students and young adults from intact, healthy families. And I'm saying that now because usually we would say this was not the case. But now there's a growing escalation of intact, healthy families of students and singles that are being hospitalized because they are suicide risk and only because they experienced a minor stress or setback in their life. So we're not even talking about major stuff. 
Well, let's, what about the, what about the greatest athlete who's ever lived? What would he say? What would the greatest Olympian to ever set foot on this planet, what would he say about depression? Well, Michael Phelps says he has spent days in his bedroom, quote, not wanting to be alive. After spending 45 days in treatment, he says he now has a new passion in life. He now wants to help folks that struggle with depression, mental illness. And this is what he says about it. This work that I'm doing is more significant than any gold medal I've ever won. What does he want you to know about depression? He says, I want, I want folks to know what I now understand. It's okay to not be okay. In fact, it's just a mark of my humanity, end quote. How do we get through depression? How do you help your loved one get through depression? How do you help your friends get through depression? How do we help each other get through depression? Robert Burton, he's an English scholar at Oxford University in the 1600s. He had a classic work that was the, the standard of the day. It was called The Anatomy of Melancholy. Melancholy simply means depression or despair. So the anatomy of depression. He wrote, if there is a hell on earth, it's found in a depressed heart. A mother describes her child's experience of depression as Danny's descent into hell. Universally, sufferers of depression describe depression as a lonely, private hell, a room in hell. Andrew Solomon, the New Yorker, said, I feel as though I died weeks ago, but my body just hasn't figured it out yet. John of the Cross, he's a leader of the Counter-Reformation. You know, the guys that were on the other side of the Reformation. We were on the right side, they were on the left side. But I still quote him. John of the Cross called depression the dark night of the soul. Ed Welch, popular author, speaker, counselor. He's a PhD in neuropsychology, whatever that is for crying out loud. He wrote a book called Depression, A Stubborn Darkness and Light for the Path. He says, it's so important for you and I or whoever suffers depression to describe the colors of the darkness because when you do, you help others. You help others put a voice to their agony. And you see, what the Bible says is very, very powerful. What the Bible says, listen, you don't, you don't stuff your pain and you don't surrender to your pain. You pray your pain. And praying your pain is being able to pray the specific terrain of darkness in your soul. He quotes this guy named Eddie Bricknell who describes his struggle with depression this way. When the doctor came into my room, he says, all right, I'm going to ask you a question. If you don't feel ready to answer it, please don't answer it. Here's the question. Who are you? I panicked, Eddie says. What do you mean? You know, when you look inside, what do you see? It was horrible, Eddie said. When I looked inside, I couldn't see anyone. All I saw was a black hole. I'm a no one. 
I said. Abraham Lincoln, what is he? George Washington, Abraham, I mean, who else do we count like the greatest presidents of all time? I mean, left, right, middle, in between, up, down, whoever you are, everyone universally thinks so. He said this, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole of humanity, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. Kay Jameson, currently professor of psychiatry at John Hopkins Medical School, wrote The Unquiet Mind, another classic that's out there today. I'm trying to give you some resources as well. Profound melancholia is a day in, day out, night in, night out, almost arterial, your blood, level of agony. It is pitiless, unrelenting pain that affords no window of hope, no alternative to a grim and brackish existence, and no respite from the cold undercurrents of a thought and feeling that dominate the horribly restless nights of despair." End quote. Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, Prince of Men, spiritual giant of spiritual giants. He describes, he describes depression as an iron bolt that bolts the door to any hope and locks you in a dungeon of dark gloom that's bottomless. He says, I could weep by the hour like a child and I knew not what I wept for. One time he told his congregation, can you imagine this? I'm trying to envision, would I ever say this? Would I ever come up here and tell you I'm in agony? No. I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. He preached a sermon called The Garden of the Soul and said, personally, I know that there is nothing on earth, nothing on earth that the human frame can suffer more or could be compared to, not bodily, nothing on earth is more painful than a despairing, prostrate mind and heart. In another sermon called The Healing for the Wounded, he said, we very speedily care for bodily diseases. They are too painful to let us slumber in silence. As soon as they surge on us, we seek a physician or a surgeon for our healing. Oh, oh, I wish we were much more alive to the more serious wounds of the inner man. Oh, I wish we were more alive to the more serious wounds of the inner man. I think we are today. If we mean by that more aware of the wounds of the inner man. I don't think our awareness is the issue. You know what I think our you know what I think is the issue? We just don't know what to do. How do you get through depression? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. From Elijah 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done 
and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and wept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on the hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horem, the mount of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> oh Lord, how do we get through depression? Um, would you help us? Would you help us? And I pray, Lord, if the statistics are correct, and that means there's one in four in this room are struggling with depression right now, and I ask that you would give them a personal word that's real, that's beyond understanding, it's supra real, and it's supra comforting, and it's supra reaching. And I ask this in your name, amen. All right, how do we get through depression? Perhaps it's better to say, how do we survive depression, right? probably a better way to say it. For the next five weeks, we will answer this question. We were going to do it for four weeks, but this turned into a two-weeker, and I decided that last night. <laughs> so we're going to start with Elijah, Elijah's road to sorrow today. Next week, we'll look at Elijah's, Elijah's survival in sorrow. So this week, it's his road to sorrow. Next week, it's his survival of sorrow. And then we'll have other passages and other topics that we're going to hit that I'm going to talk about a little later in the middle of this, okay? So that's where we're going. What does Elijah's road to sorrow look like? Uh, well, now this is Elijah. It's like I have to have all these qualifications, I think, when we get into this topic, because I want to say everything all at once, and I can't do that. It's impossible to say everything that needs to be said about this topic, because it's so complex, and it's so powerful, and it's so real. So here's what we're going to do. This is this is Elijah's road to sorrow. This might be your road to sorrow. It might not be your road to sorrow. Hang in there because we'll probably hit your road to sorrow within the next five weeks. Okay? That's my qualification. So for Elijah, it looks like painful people. Do you see that in verse 2? Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more so also, for I don't make your life as like one of them. In other words, one of the slaughtered prophets of Baal. By this time to a tomorrow. Jezebel is saying to Elijah, now remember, there was just a massive demonstration of the power of God on Mount Carmel, unlike anything in the Old Testament except the exile, except the parting of the Red Sea. 
So this is one of the highest breakthroughs, encounters with God in the Bible. Can you imagine? Remember when he left? He was so high, not literally, but high. And the hand of the Lord was upon him, and, and he ran 17 miles through the valley of Jezreel, leading the king because he believed the national revival was about to break out in all of Israel. It has to start with the king because of the Davidic promises. So the king has to change. The people have to change. We're going back to the high point of David's kingship. So he goes into Jezreel, which is the, the winter palace of the king. And he's waiting for the king and queen to watch what God does to change them and to change Israel. And she sends that messenger, and she's basically saying to him, listen, I have the power to take your life literally whenever I want. Now, if she really wanted him dead, she wouldn't have sent a messenger. She would have sent an assassin, a spec op dude. Take him out really, really quick. So what's she doing? Oh, it's much more much more diabolical than what we're thinking. One scholar, a guy named uh, Sam, Simeon DeVry says, what's going on here is more of a challenge. It's more of a power play. In other words, you're supposed to think of Jezebel as very ruthless, abusive, almost like pathological, um, incredibly cunning and subversive. You're supposed to think of the serpent in Genesis 3. So Jezebel is trying to mess with his mind. She's trying to get into his head. She's trying to hammer and hit his heart. She wants to undo him. She wants to discredit him. She has ambitions. She wants to turn the, the tide of this teetering possible national revival. She wants, she wants to humiliate him. She wants a shamed Elijah, not a martyred Elijah, not a heroic Elijah that would rally the whole nation back to God. <laughs> so she goes for his mind. She goes for his heart. People, people can bring overwhelming pain to your life. Some of you know that down to your bones. Others of you are about ready to find out. Still others of you think, no, not me. That's okay. We all think that. What does Elijah's road to sorrow look like? Well, it looks like painful people, but it also looks like painful defeat. Look at verse 3. Then he was afraid. This is how he responds to the messenger. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. <laughs> he literally ran. This is 100 miles to Beersheba. So if you, got Jew, if you got Israel right here, Beersheba is at the southern tip of Israel. So remember, Israel's been divided in two. You got northern Israel, which is where Jezebel and Ahab are, you got Judah, which has a whole other king, but he kept running 100 miles down to Beersheba. If he leaves Israel, he's now as far away possible as he could be from her. So he's as far away from Jezebel as he can get if he wants to stay in Israel. But when he gets to, when he gets to Beersheba, he does something that's absolutely shocking. It's found in verse 3 if you look at it. He dismisses his servant. Do you see that? And he left his servant there. Dismissing your servant means he's quitting He's done. He's had enough. He's leaving the ministry. 
Do you know that the average pastor today lasts three to five years in ministry? Today we call this pastoral burnout. That's the word we use today. I mean, can you feel it? Oh, I can. Do you know the dreams I had when I first came here, man? <laughs> Only my wife knows them. And when, when your dreams don't come true, and you want to be used by God, he wanted to be used by God so much, he, he saw it, he was, he's like, oh my Lord, you're going to, you're going to turn us back, you're, you're breaking through to us, you're going to turn the king, you're going to, oh, we're going to be who we're supposed to be, we'll be a light to the nations, this whole thing is going to change. He says, it's enough, God. I'm no better than my fathers. Just like every prophet before me, we just seem to fail, although we just fail more spectacularly than the one before. So we're famous for being great failures. We're famous for not being used. We're famous for nothing happening in Israel's history, just a slow, deteriorating decline. I quit. I'm done. What use is this? Charles Spurgeon was one of the first megachurch pastors. Now, I want you to think about this. This is the 1800s. It's Britain. It's Victorian. These are folks that when they talk, they can cuss you out, and you'll smile because you think they're so polite. I mean, their language is just so... It's just... It's not like our language. Let's just put it that way. He's newly married, 10 months into his marriage. He's physically exhausted, both he and his wife, because Susanna just had twin boys that are only one month old at the time. Now, some of you are doing your math, so let me re reassure you. Uh, this was a honeymoon conception. So they've been married for 10 months. They conceived. They are now one month old, these twin boys. All right. He's preaching to thousands in London. This is his first pastorate. Uh, in the midst of preaching to thousands in London, a prankster, a jerk, stands up and goes, fire! And people buffaloed for the door. Seven people were trampled to death. Twenty-eight people were taken to the hospital with serious wounds, not knowing whether they were survived or not. It shredded his soul. The newspapers across London started viciously and cruelly accusing him, blaming him. The whole town hated him. Zach Eswine, in his new book, Spurgeon's Sorrow, says the senseless tragedy and the public accusation nearly broke Charles' mind, not only in those early moments, but also with lasting effects. Susanna, his wife, said... My beloved's anguish was so deep, so violent, that reasoned, reason seemed to toddle on her throne in his head. And we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. The prince of preachers. Defeat. 
has the power to defeat you. What does Elijah's road to sorrow look like? Well, it looks like painful people. It looks like painful defeat. And it looks like a painful inner life. Elijah's life is mentioned over and over and over again in this passage. In verse 2, Jezebel threatens it. In verse 3, Elijah flees for it. In verse 4, Elijah surrenders it. In verse 10 and verse 14, enemies seek to take it and rip it away. Elijah's life is a big deal in 1 Kings 19. Elijah's life is on display for everybody in 1 Kings 19. If Elijah was here all over this page, to those who would listen certainly to God, to all of us who read for thousands and thousands of years now, later, thousands and thousands of years into the future, Elijah is saying to you and me all over this page, I, I'm in pain. In verse 4, after he leaves his servant, he trudges into the wilderness all alone, and then he collapses under a broom tree. Now, does that sound familiar? Is there another prophet who collapses under a broom tree with depression and wants to quit the ministry and asks God to take his life? Do you remember that prophet? Jonah. And the Lord asked, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. Now, the angel that intervenes in the story, what we're going to do is next week, there are two beholds. So when God responds to his depression, remember in the Hebrew when it says behold, it means pay attention? There are two beholds. So God's response, God's help, so Elijah is going to come in an angel, and then it's going to come with himself. And that's what we'll look at next week. But this angel gives a window, opens a window into the heart, into the soul of Elijah for you and me. This is what he says in verse 7. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. Here it is. For the journey is too great for you. Everything, everything in Elijah's life is too great for him. Painful people are too great for him. Painful defeat is too great for him. His own painful inner life and heart is too great for him. And here's the point for all of us. Here's the help immediately for us, just even right here when you least expect it. Failure to see that the journey is too great for you hurts you. If you don't know, if you don't feel deep in your bones, if you don't grow in believing more and more, if I don't, that the journey of life is too great for you, you will get hurt and hurt and hurt and hurt. And then you're going to turn around and hurt others. Because if you don't believe that the journey is too great for you and you don't believe that the journey of life is too great for others, you're going to say stupid things. You're going to say stupid things like, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. Oh, you shouldn't think that way. You shouldn't say such things like that. You're going to say stupid things like, why can't you just choose to be happy? 
You know, here, 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 have a candy. Just take a warm bath. That might help. Joy is a choice. You can control this. You'll say stupid things like, you must be in sin, it's spiritual weakness. You must have done this to yourself. It must be your fault somehow. Jesus doesn't want you to feel this way. You just don't have enough faith. And then, and then we have this compassionate angel and this compassionate Lord that says just the opposite. The journey, it's too great for you. It's just too great. This is our intro into a series on depression. So we will touch upon, I just want to let you know because you're wondering, is he going to cover this? Is he going to cover that? Because this is what's going on with me. I realize that and there's no way I'm going to be able to cover everything. But here's what I'm going to try to touch upon. I'm going to try to touch upon biological depression. That means your body and brain, which are biological, biological contributions to depression. We're going to talk about circumstantial depression, how circumstances, which is a lot of what we're looking at here, contribute to depression. We're going to talk about spiritual depression. If there is a depression that's darker than any kind of depression, the worst kind of depression, if there is a ranking of all kinds of depression, spiritual depression is the worst. It's Psalm 88 kind of stuff. We're going to look at that as well. We'll be in 2 Corinthians because we're going to look at Paul's depression. We're going to be in Psalm 88 because we're going to look at the psalmist's depression. And then we're going to be in Psalm, we're going to be in Romans 7. We're going to look at the Christian's depression. Somebody has to tell you this. When you become a Christian, inherent in being a Christian is depression. What are you talking about, Jeff? Well, you're just going to have to wait and come see. But Romans 7 is describing a reality of being a Christian that now makes you more aware to the sadness of your life in the world that you don't have and don't necessarily get. And certainly not with, with this view of reality if you're not a Christian. So you might just feel more as a Christian. So let's wrap up Elijah. Here's how we're going to do it. How does Elijah's road to depression help us? I'm going to end this way. Here's the first answer, and it's the primary one of all of this. This is how it helps us. You are not alone. You are not alone. Famous songwriter William Cooper, whose pastor was John Newton, we just sang his song, Amazing Grace. Do you know that's the most popular song in the history of the world whether you are religious or irreligious, whether you are churched or unchurched. In fact, if you will watch at all the catastrophes and the, the tragedies that happen all over the world, people will, in these memorial services, in these spontaneous gatherings of people, people will start singing songs, the famous songs that bring comfort, and it'll go for like one line or it'll go for a phrase or two, and then it, it fades out because nobody really knows it. And someone, someone will stand up and sing amazing grace, and the whole place sings it all. Well, William Cooper struggled with depression his whole life, and he had a pastor named Newton who knew about amazing grace. And this is what Cooper says about not being alone. He puts it poetically this way, but misery still delights to trace. But misery still delights to trace. 
its semblance in another's case. In other words, Elijah is your friend in sorrow. When you come up to Elijah, you see Elijah and you go, you too? God gave you a friend named Elijah and Jonah and the Apostle Paul and the psalmist and Jesus himself. How can Elijah's suffering, his road to suffering, help us? Here's the second answer. The journey is too great for you. Depression is too great for you. Depression is too great for you. You're only human. You're not Superman. You're not Superwoman. You're not a super saint. You're not spiritually victorious. You're a human being in a jacked up, messed up world. This is what Spurgeon did. He confessed his humanity amidst all the hell of what happened. Do you know he had to go back and preach the next week? Can you imagine? All the cruel public blame and accusations, the Jezebels out there just lambasting him, messing with his mind, hammering his heart, this is what he said when he stepped into the pulpit. I almost regret this morning that I have ventured to occupy this pulpit because I feel utterly unable to preach to you. I had thought that the quiet and repose of last night had removed the effects of that terrible catastrophe. But on coming back to the same spot again, and more especially standing here to address you, this is PTSD. Can you imagine that he stands in the pulpit, he starts to do what he's just about to do, what he's called to do, the very act of preaching sends pain and emotions and a nightmare of memory, deep anguish. How do you recover from something like that? PTSD in your call. Every time you step up to preach. I feel somewhat of those same painful emotions which well nigh prostrated me before. You will therefore excuse me this morning. I have been utterly unable to study this week. And then he starts praying and he says, O Spirit of God, magnify your strength and your servant's weakness even when his soul is cast down within him. Oh, Lord, defeat the journey. It's too great for you. It's too great for you. How can Elijah's road to suffering help us? Here's the last one. The absence of depression is not your hope. 
The absence of depression does not save you. The absence of painful people in your life is not your hope. The absence of painful defeat in your life is not your hope. The absence of a painful inner life is not your hope. The absence of, of lament is not what saves you. The absence of a foul, horrific, catastrophic, ugly thinking and feeling and foul mood that goes on inside you is not your hope. Jesus is. Alone. Alone. Good feelings do not save you. Good circumstances do not save you. Having no Jezebels in your life does not save you. Jesus saves you. And Jesus is the friend of the depressed. How do we know this? Isn't it interesting that when Elijah is confessing to God that it's over, it sounds so much like Jesus on the cross. It is enough, Lord. And the greatest prophet who ever lives on the cross says, it, it's enough. It's finished. I've completed my ministry. Now, take, take away my life for my friends.